You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, I, uh, I love to cook. It's a passion that I've developed over the last few years. I think it started uh, when I used to sell knives which is a real fact about me. If you didn't know, I went from a knife salesman to a pastor, which is a really wild journey. I'm down to tell you about it. Uh, but I got, I, I actually was pretty good at selling knives. I was pretty sharp. And uh, nice. just making sure you're paying attention, getting us warmed up. No, I, when, when I started to sell knives, uh, that meant I started to use them in the kitchen more, which meant I got to cook a lot more. And I just found it this really beautiful, uh, life-giving thing for me. It's this way of kind of taking these things that are typically disconnected in one way or another, things that are unrelated to one another, bringing them together and creating something new. It's kind of bringing order out of chaos, hopefully delicious order out of chaos. And so I developed this pattern in my life. I cooked often. And when Emily and I got married, my wife and I, uh, she wanted to make sure that we had these recipes for the long term because I was just used to cooking the recipes as I knew them in my head. She's like, hey, we should write these down. One, because we're going to forget them. But two, because, well, you may not be around, and I might want to cook these recipes sometime. You might be out of town or the like. And so she made this little recipe box for us. It includes all these little index cards with all of the details of these recipes laid out. And if you came into our kitchen and saw this recipe box, you'd see all the usual recipe things. You'd see the ingredients. You'd see the amounts. You'd see the instructions for how to make our recipes at home. But if you're looking well, that's not all that you'd see. If you're looking well, you'd see far more about the chefs, about the cooks. For instance, you'd see my personality come across in the names of our recipes, which are always puns. I always include silly recipe names. So, all the shells and whistles is one of our recipes. Guac do you mean, that's another one. All the butter to eat you with. It brings my personality across, and it's really not that funny, I know, but it's goofy, and it's part of who I am. And so if you read our recipes, you would see that goofiness come across. You'd also see Emily's personality in the detailed organization of this recipe box. It is segmented. There's tabs. The handwriting is perfect and precise. That's my wife. Highly organized. That's not me, but that's my wife. Eventually, if you looked around long enough in a recipe box, you'd see our playfulness for one another. You'd see our care for each other, the way that we want to live healthy lives by the ingredients that we cook our meals with. Our recipe box is an open window into our characters, into our hearts, into who we are. The recipes help you, if you read them, know who we are. And so that means that recipes are never just about data. They're never just about the things themselves. They're always about the heart behind the data. And that's why the recipes that mean the most to us are the ones made by the people that mean the most to us. That's why a home-cooked meal is so much greater than fast food, because we know that love and intentionality and care has been poured into that. The meal is a way to connect with the chef. And it turns out that scripture has something similar to say about creation. In many ways, creation is a recipe. It is the bringing together of all of these seemingly disconnected parts in order to form a cohesive ecosystem of life and flourishing. It's beautiful and striking, but creation is always about more than just the ingredients. It's about uh, the character and the chef behind them. And we learn about the character of that chef by studying the recipe of creation. And so today, in this next installment in our series, we're calling Christianity 
uncomplicated. We're looking at the Apostles' Creed together, that statement Tom just led us in reading. We're going to look at the first statement after the words, I believe in. That's how the creed begins, I believe in. And then immediately after, we hear these words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And like Tom mentioned, this creed, by the way, it's not some magical or mysterious thing. It's just a kind of spark notes version of this whole scriptural story. It's a way for all Christians in a concise and clear manner to articulate what it means to follow Jesus and how that affects our lives. And we know, especially in the United States, that a lot of times Christianity has extra stuff heaped on top of it. And sometimes that can make it really difficult to discern what's the core of our faith. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And so this series, we're hoping to get some of that extra stuff out of the way. We're hoping to look at the core itself and see what the core really does for us. So this morning, examining that statement, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we're going to look at an ancient poem, Psalm 104 today. It paints this powerful picture of the recipe of creation. But we're going to do this a little bit differently this week. So normally we read our Bibles together, we have the words up on the screen. But these psalms, these ancient poems, are meant to be listened to, meant to be discerned, and meant to uh, be meditated on. And so my hope today is actually that we would just listen to the psalm together. We live in a culture that's not always great at listening. I can say that for myself. I'm not always the best at listening because of our screens a lot of the time. So I'm going to ask you as I read this psalm, first, go ahead and take out your phone right now and put it on Do Not Disturb or Airplane Mode so that you won't get buzzed or notified as we read through this amazing recipe of creation. I'll give you a second to do that. And after you've pulled out your phone and, and put it on a, a silent mode or a, a, an airplane mode, I'm going to ask everyone in the room to go ahead and close their eyes. Settle into your chair. Pay attention to where there might be tension in your body, in your shoulders, maybe in your jaw. Give yourself permission to release that tension. Take a couple deep breaths. Pay attention to the way that the air fills in your lungs and expands your chest, and then the way it releases freely from your body. And now, friends, as I read Psalm 104, pay attention to the images that strike you the things that stick out to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my Lord, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they flee. At the sound of your thunder, they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary so that they may not pass, so that they might not cover the earth again. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. 
From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has its home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the conies. You've made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And people go out to their work and to their labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there. Living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. But when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and open your eyes. There was a scientist who lived back a few centuries ago and uh, he devoted his entire life to observing the natural world. He's considered the father of the modern scientific method and by many to be the father of modern science. His name is Francis Bacon, which is a legendary name, by the way, Francis Bacon. If he shortened Francis, it'd be Frank Bacon, which is amazing. <laughs> Francis Bacon had a famous quote in one of his books. It's titled, Advancement of Learning. He said this, God has, in fact, written two books, not just one. Of course, we're familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture, but he has written a second book called Creation. Francis Bacon, one of our early scientific forefathers, assumes that we can learn about who God is by studying the natural world, that we can learn about the chef by studying the recipes. And many other scientists have followed suit. Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolutionary theory, in his book The Origin of Species, quotes Francis Bacon with the same sort of notion. He says this, let no person think or maintain that they can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or the book of God's works, creation. But rather, let men or women, people, endeavor in an endless progress or proficiency in both. The author of our psalm today would agree with Francis Bacon, with Charles Darwin, and with a multitude of other scientists in our world. We can learn about who God is by studying creation. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And before we jump into the psalm, 
I want to make very clear, this is an important point. Christianity is never opposed to science or to learning. When Christianity is at its healthiest, it sees those endeavors as critical to understanding the character and the heart of God. You wouldn't necessarily know that oftentimes in our culture because our culture likes to pit faith and religion against science. You're either one or the other. But that's not how it's worked over the most of church history. For instance, biochemistry was done for centuries by little monks and friars in monasteries that you've never heard of. They kept the arts of beer making alive, which thank God they did. <laughs> Universities in the Western world were by and large started by Christians because they believed it was critically important to study our world, to learn and to know about our world if we're to know God. They encouraged learning. They didn't squelch learning. Hospitals all around the Western world were founded by Christians because we knew that we need to care for the poor and the sick and the oppressed and the needy. And in order to care for them well, we've got to understand their bodies well. We need to know anatomy and biology. Christians, at every point in church history when they've done their job, have emphasized science as an important tool to understand who God is. When the church does its job, it sees science as intrinsically connected to faith, as indicative of the character of the chef. And that's what this poem is reminding us of here. It's revealing to us how studying the way that the world works teaches us about the one who made it work that way. So I think there's two things that we learn right here in this psalm about who God is, about the character of the chef of creation. We learn first that God is infinite, and second, that God is intimate. God is infinite, and God is intimate. Those are the same two things that the creed is bringing out. God is almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's intimate. And God is a father. That's, oh, I'm sorry, that's intimate. <laughs> father is intimate. A maker of heaven and earth is infinite. And so let's explore how the psalm reveals these two things to us, the infinity of God and the intimacy of God. First, the infinity of God. His rule and power is on full display at the start of the psalm here. The psalmist uses powerful metaphorical language to describe God's authority over creation. He says that God is wrapped in light as with a garment, which is a fascinating picture. Light, one of the most essential, bare elements of the universe, the fastest thing that we know of in modern science, and the thing by which everything else functions. God puts that thing on like it's a robe. Like he's waking up in the morning, he's like, oh, light, I'll wear that. Nice. It's just a casual thing that he has complete authority over. The psalmist says that God stretches out the heavens like a tent. The heavens for the ancient world where everything beyond what we could perceive or know. It was out there, the sky and the universe, the expansive cosmos. The psalmist says that God well, stretches that out like it's a tent, like it's just this casual thing that he can set up, right? Put a couple pegs in the ground and you've got a tent. He uses an extended metaphor talking about the waters here, how God is in complete control of the waters in the ancient world. He spends numerous verses talking about this. And that should strike us. Why numerous verses on the waters, right? Why, why the water is significant? In our world, we don't really have a symbolic meaning behind waters. They're just waters. But in the ancient world, the waters were hugely symbolic. This is an important metaphor that the psalmist is bringing out here. Waters in that day in ancient Near Eastern culture were always seen as elements of chaos and confusion. They were indicative of how nature is so beyond our control and could swallow us up at any moment which makes sense in that world, right? If you're an ancient person who is not dug to the deeps of the sea, you're not really sure what's down there, right? And then you see these huge creatures every once in a while pop up. It's a little scary, a little mysterious, a little chaotic and confusing. 
In fact, one of the words that might have struck you as you were listening to the song, Leviathan, it's an ancient creature that was seen symbolically as an agent of chaos. The chaos of nature was in the Leviathan. Most scientists today think that it's probably like a huge whale or a giant squid that they were referring to. For these people, the waters were representative of the powerful and terrifying force of nature that at any point could swallow any of us up. And we like to think that we have advanced beyond that understanding and have controlled nature today, but I actually don't think that's true. For instance, according to the National Ocean Service and their most recent studies, we've discovered roughly, as humans, about 20% of the world's oceans. 20%, which means 80% of the world's oceans, we have no idea what goes on. We have no clue what creatures live there. We have no idea what's happening. That's 75% of our own planet, and we know only 20% of that. The psalmist is making it abundantly clear here that God has control even over the most chaotic and terrifying forces in our world. The Leviathan is, it says that he allows the Leviathan to sport in the oceans. That's like calling the Leviathan a rubber duck to God. He's just playing around with this massive sea creature because that's the amount of authority he has. Friends, we need to hear this news because nature is a terrifying thing. We like to think of nice, serene, beautiful, romanticized pictures of nature. And in many ways, there's a lot of beauty in nature. That's true. That's why we play these nature sounds as we listen. But all around us, all the time, we are reminded that we live on a thin sliver of the universe and that not much of this universe is habitable at all for humans. In fact, not much of this planet is. If we rose up 15 miles from the ground, there wouldn't be enough oxygen for us to breathe and we'd die. If we went 15 miles down into the ocean, we'd collapse from the weight of the water and probably die from poisonous gas. Physicists have discovered that the strength of gravity, if it was altered even slightly, would make the universe utterly inhabitable for all forms of life. We are dependent, utterly dependent on trillions of things to go right, just to exist, just to listen, just to think, just to be here. This whole universe is terrifying. There is chaos impending on us all the time. And yet, for some reason, it works. For some reason, we're able to live. There's a thin sliver of the universe that creates the opportunity for life. It's as if something is holding back the chaos. It's as if something is making this possible. And even secular scientists will mention this, by the way. This isn't just a Christian idea. Secular scientists are regularly shocked by how precise our universe is. Stephen Hawking, some of you may have heard of him, brilliant physicist, not a Christian, brilliant physicist, he said this. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers, he's talking about the constants in the universe, things like gravity. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. You guys, science today is indicating what the psalmist indicated in his day, that God is holding back the threatening elements of the universe all the time so that we might exist, so that this world might exist, so that life might flourish. Which means only by the grace of God are we able to live. Only by the grace of God are we able to wake up and breathe in the morning. Only by the grace of God does the sun rise every day. A study of the recipe of creation reveals to us the infinite, almighty power of God that goes even beyond the most chaotic forces of our world. And yet oftentimes, that fact, 
the almightiness and the infinite nature of God can often make us put a distance between ourselves and God. We can think that God is way out there, right? And he's making things happen, he's sustaining things, but he doesn't really have a whole lot to say to my life. So I believe in a creator of some sort, way out there, but when it comes to my life, there's not a whole lot he has to say. It's like God is a cosmic watchmaker who's just kind of wound things up and then let it go. Even those of us that are Christians often do this. Have you ever found yourself in prayer wondering, I mean, I shouldn't pray for this, right? This little thing, like this is, God doesn't care about this. This little part of my life, I'll, I can handle that. I don't need to lift that to God in prayer. We create a distance between ourselves and the infinite. And this text tells us that that's ultimately not the picture of God we get. He's not a distant watchmaker. He's not just infinite. He's intimate. God isn't just an almighty creator. He's also a loving father. Did you catch it in the Psalms? The intimacy of God is indicated by what he does with the chaotic waters. So he holds everything back. He creates a sliver of the universe for us to live in, and then he cares for every little part of that universe in detail. The text says that God causes that chaotic water to spring forth, to hydrate everything. The asses may have stuck out to you because, well, ass, right? But the donkeys, the donkeys care. God, God cares for these donkeys. He gives them water. That same water causes trees and plants to grow up, which create houses for even the smallest of birds, the most significant, insignificant things that you can think of in creation. Those waters cause grass to grow for the cattle. Every little blade, God makes sure, provides food for creation. This water causes plants to grow from the earth, which humans can then cultivate. It brings wine and bread. Wine. Joyous, joyous thing. Yes. We've got beer and wine shout-outs today. On the wine and bread comes from the ground. Our ability to be sustained as humans, to enjoy this life, it all comes from God. And he cares for those minute details. Those are quite literally the recipes of the divine chef. Then he says oil to make the face shine. In the ancient world, a shiny face indicated health and youthfulness oftentimes. This is makeup. Makeup. All the way down to the makeup that we put on our faces here matters to God. Mountains for the goats to live in. Massive trees for the storks. Rocks as shelter for the seabirds. Food for the lions. The sun and the moon to mark the seasons for work and play. All of it, God cares about. God is intimately involved. You guys, the God of the universe is not just far away out there somewhere. He is working every day in every corner of our cosmos to sustain life, to bring flourishing, and to invite us into that life and flourishing. Our creation is evidence that God is involved in even the most insignificant details of our lives. Pay attention to it next time you wake up in the morning, sometime this week. Take 10 minutes before you do anything else. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at anything else. Maybe sit outside before it gets too hot. Notice the trees. Notice the breath that fills your lungs without you trying. Notice your heartbeat that you never really notice until you stop. That heart's been beating for years, sustaining you. God cares about every part of your life. Not just the big cosmic things. Not just making planets do their thing. This God knows your tiredness, your body aches, your anxiety. He knows it all. And he longs to share in his love with you in the middle of all of those things. 
And that, by the way, is always what true love looks like. True love always gets involved in the intimate details of the beloved. You can say, I love someone, but if you're not actually involved in their life in any meaningful way expressing that love, you're not really loving them. We would say that love always follows up with action in even the most seemingly insignificant details. It means showing up when somebody's just kind of having a bad day, bringing them a drink or a meal. It means grieving with people when they need to grieve, sitting in silence if they need it. It means providing a tissue for someone who's crying. It means giving food to the hungry or water to the thirsty. That's what it looks like to love in the intimate details. Friends, God's love is evident for us because it takes a magnifying glass to every moment, to everything we do. All matter matters to God. All matter matters to God. This infinite and almighty Lord makes himself known to us in the intimate details of our lives. And this is a crucial point, you guys. We don't just learn about who God is, who the chef is, by studying the recipe. We also learn about the significance of the recipe by knowing the chef. I'll run that back again because there's metaphors and things. We, we don't just learn about who God is based on looking at creation. We learn about the significance of creation when we know God, when we know the love he has for that creation. It changes the purpose and significance of this whole cosmos. When we know that God cares for every last detail, it changes us as people. Every day, God is calling every single person in this room and every person outside of this room in hundreds of little, tiny, seemingly mundane moments that we might experience his love and embody that love to the world. God isn't just infinite, he's intimate. So the question for us should become, well, all right, so what I learn about who God is, the character of God from creation, and then the character of God informs my understanding of creation and its purpose and significance. So what's my role in all this? What does it matter for me? What is my purpose or significance in this creation? And thankfully, God gives us a really clear picture of that in the scriptures. God answered that question by actually showing up and explaining to us, illustrating for us what it means to love creation. The infinite and intimate God became incarnate in Jesus to show us what this recipe is supposed to look like what this whole cosmic stew is supposed to taste like. The infinity of Jesus is shown when he walked on the water, when he calmed the seas. These cosmic forces of chaos, Jesus handled like they were nothing. But he didn't just do that. He also showed up in the intimate, in the insignificant, to the people that were always overlooked. He said, hey, those children that you overlook, bring them to me. All of their unruliness, all of their runny noses, bring them because I care for them. He went to the blind beggars and healed their eyes. These people who would have been forgotten to history, we now know about in this text because God sees them as valuable. He gave bread to people when they were hungry. He gave wine and water to people when they were thirsty. He gave value to the prostitutes and the bums and the drunkards, the people who no one else would give value to. God showed up and said, I care for you. Every part of your life is significant. Every part of it matters. And then in the culmination of Jesus' ministry, his infinity and intimacy is on full display. He went to the cross. He took on the death and suffering that all of us have brought into the world in one way or another. He got his hands dirty 
in the intimate parts of our lives. He experienced death. And then he rose again. The resurrection is the ultimate evidence of the infinity of God, that death and sin and brokenness, the thing that weighs on all of us, didn't weigh on God. He left it in the grave so that we might live different sorts of lives in this creation. You guys, God put on flesh so that everyone would see his infinity and his intimacy and see the value in their life, see the value in their role in creation, be invited to partner with God in bringing life and flourishing to all things. So Jesus makes quite clear what our purpose is. If we look at Jesus, we look at what it means to be human, what it means to live. He said that our role is to repent, to say, I have not stewarded or cared for this creation or the people around me or God as I should have. I've brought death and destruction into the world. I need you, Jesus, to forgive me. I need your grace in my life. And then I need your way to guide everything that I do. All of my priorities about money, about relationships, all of that is now up to God. When we become Christian, we choose to say that every one of those priorities is being shaped by Jesus, by what he says and does in our life. That's what it means to participate in this creation. That's what the psalmist gets at at the end of Psalm 104. His reflections at the end are to praise God and to meditate on God all the time, to allow God to shape every nook and cranny of our lives. Now remember, in this creed series, we're going to say, I believe, to certain statements every week. But we talked about this last week. To believe is actually to do something. Belief is never just an intellectual exercise. If you believe that the chair will hold you, you sit in it. If you believe that the ground won't cave from beneath you, you walk on it. It leads to action every time. And so the question remains for us. Are we willing to really believe that God is infinite and intimate? Are we willing to trust that God is an almighty, loving father? Because if we are, we'll walk out of this room changed people. We'll walk out of this room seeing our lives differently, seeing the lives of the people around us differently. We will see the infinite value that God places in all the intimate and insignificant details of our lives. We'll leave ready to embody God's love to the world, to love our neighbors and our enemies. And those two go together because sometimes they're the same people. To forgive those that we need to forgive, to give food to those who need it, to give drink to those who need it, to serve those who are vulnerable and overlooked in our society because all of them have value. The Almighty Father says to each of them, you matter. And I want to invite every one of you into this new creation, this redeemed and restored creation. You guys, you're going to go out there and creation's going to be shouting at you all the time. The trees and the birds, the breath in your lungs, the water and coffee that you drink, all of it is screaming to you that God is at work and that he cares about every detail of your that he loves you in every one of those details, and that he longs for you to participate with him in bringing life and flourishing to all things. So will we choose to say, I love you, back, as Tom mentioned earlier? Will we choose to walk in our lives, allowing God to work in every way? Will we choose to eat the recipe of our creator, to really soak it in? And then, will we choose to start cooking, right alongside? Let's pray.